Blog Talk Radio. Given what most Americans believe, the next statement may be more shocking than any previous. The fact is, the United States is not a country, but a corporation contractually created by the Constitution. Your state is a country, per the law, and your original citizenship is of that country. Our founders instituted themselves to be first and foremost citizens of their respective states. As of 1787, those states already had formed a union, and they created the Constitution for the purpose of perfecting that union in forming a national government. They did not intend that the new nation have any jurisdiction or powers over the states or their citizens that were not specifically enumerated in the Constitution. They stated this point quite clearly in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 of the Constitution. They granted the United States exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district not exceeding 10 miles square as may become the seat of the government of the United States, our District of Columbia, and to exercise authority over all places purchased by the consent of the states. And that is all. The framers further secured the rights of the people with the Ninth and Tenth Amendments in the Bill of Rights. In the Ninth, they established that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And in the Tenth, they made clear that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. The only way the federal government can have any jurisdiction beyond these constitutional clauses is by written permission or contract. Which leads us to another piece of the puzzle, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, ratified in 1868 following the Civil War. As barbaric as it may sound today, the black slaves prior to the conclusion of the Civil War were legally considered to be property with none of the rights or privileges of free-born people only duties. The money interests took advantage of America's desire to free the slaves and found a way to use the swiftly adopted post-war constitutional amendments to enslave all of the people. The deceit is in the wording of both the 13th and 14th Amendments. You will note that the 13th Amendment provides that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States. But why the emphasis on involuntary servitude? Isn't it the same thing as slavery? Sure it is. But they had to mention the concept of involuntary servitude because they wished to retain another type of slavery, voluntary servitude. Voluntary servitude is an ancient and established concept. It was the way serfs became subjects to their lords during feudal times in England and other European countries. It was a way for free men to earn a living at a time when all property was held by a select few, and thus anyone who wanted to farm and support their family had first to agree to be subject to a lord of the land. Our forefathers hated this concept and designed our Constitution to exclude titles of nobility, making all Americans sovereign. The 14th Amendment turned the intention of the founders on its ear by making voluntary servitude a requirement for former slaves to gain the rights already guaranteed to free-born United States citizens. 
When the slaves were released from their involuntary servitude following the war, their status was changed from that of being property to that of being a person. But being a person still entitled them to none of the rights associated with citizenship. So the 14th Amendment ostensibly was written to provide the former slaves with the same constitutional rights of freeborn American citizens, but only if they agreed first to become subject to the jurisdiction of the corporate United States, making oneself paramountly, that is, first subject to the jurisdiction of the laws of the United States, however, limits access to parts of the Bill of Rights, as we'll explain in a moment. But first remember, anyone who voluntarily subjects himself to the laws or jurisdiction of another is, in every way, obligated to abide by the terms of any contracts or laws established by whomever establishes the rules of the contract. In simple terms, this meant that the former slaves became subjects first to the United States and secondly to the state in which they lived. They had no sovereignty whatsoever. This status had never existed in the United States prior to that time. The 14th Amendment created a new class of citizenship in the United States, a second-class citizenship. Up until 1868, every American was a paramount citizen of their state, and by virtue of that, also a citizen of the United States, with full individual sovereignty as guaranteed by Amendments 9 and 10 in the Bill of Rights. But so-called naturalized citizens, or 14th Amendment citizens, are paramountly subject to all laws of the United States, and, having no status as freeborn citizens, have no access at all to the unenumerated rights retained for the people by Articles 9 and 10 of the Bill of Rights. That's because, in order to get any rights at all, they had to subject themselves to the jurisdiction of the corporate United States, which left them no unenumerated rights. The only rights they had were those specifically written into the Constitution. The sad tragedy of America today is that all U.S. citizens, regardless of race, are now 14th Amendment slaves due to contracts with the government of the United States through Social Security, birth certificates, driving licenses, citizenship statements, tax forms, and many other documents. The true paramount citizenship that all Americans deserve is that of their respective state, which is a sovereign citizenship. Such status would exempt them from federal and state income taxes as well as property and inheritance taxes. This sovereign citizenship was the status held by our forefathers. Now, if you're still thinking that the U.S. government needs to have a central bank and collect income tax or it will collapse, think again. Over two-thirds of the federal government's income is derived from sources other than income tax. There is even evidence suggesting that none of your income tax is used by the government. Fees, excise taxes, tariffs, sales taxes, and other forms of income have easily supported the U.S. budget in the past and could easily support it now. We have done without a national bank for large stretches of our history, and the U.S. Treasury is perfectly capable of printing and managing a money supply. In fact, the only constitutionally sanctioned currency is backed by gold or other precious metals. This is a far more stable form of currency and is the type of money the Treasury was designed to handle.
The government was doing so well collecting money under these original laws that it had amassed a huge surplus by the time this cartoon was penned a hundred years later in 1887, when there still was no income tax collected at all. Up to this point, we have shown you how the money interests have, one, established the Federal Reserve System, and two, exploited a second class of citizenship created by the 14th Amendment for other purposes. And we have mentioned a few names involved in the creation of the Fed. But there are other organizations working for our economic enslavement as well, along with other extremely rich and powerful international bankers. Those who support the Fed have created a global movement to centralize economic power in various puppet organizations that preach peace and stability through some variation of socialism, but act aggressively to draw nations into a web of foreign debt and servitude to their agenda. The United Nations, the World Monetary Fund, and the Council on Foreign Relations are all committed to an agenda of world domination through manipulation of economic power. The Council on Foreign Relations openly admits to being a private club, yet it is the primary recruiting post in both international banking and the federal government of the United States. Richard Nixon, Nelson Rockefeller, John Foster Dulles, Dean Rusk, Alger Hiss, Robert S. McNamara, and every president since FDR, with the exception of John Kennedy, have been members of this exclusive club where super financiers and your elected representatives can mix freely and plan the next step in the consolidation of power in a new world order. One of the most important things, because the subconscious mind uh, really has fundamental programs of life that we acquire from our parents, our family, our community uh, between uh, the last trimester of pregnancy and the first seven years. So this is why nature created the first seven years of a child's life to download how to be a member of a family and a society and a culture by strictly observing other people. It's actually a brain function. It's a equivalent of hypnosis. Yes. Okay. So the fundamental programs of your subconscious are not yours. The conscious mind is yours. That's the creative mind. Well, the issue is that the conscious mind uh, can travel in time. What are you doing next week? Yeah. Your mind lets go the moment, goes to the next week. What did you do last week? Let's go the moment, and you move into last week. Or I say, Ty, think of something in your head. Uh, and the moment you're thinking, you're not paying attention. Well, this is what the function of the subconscious comes in. When you're not paying attention, you go to autopilot. So it's not like you're walking down the street and you have a thought and then stop. Like that. No, you continue walking. Yeah, but you're not paying attention. So it's a subconscious that does all the jobs from walking to driving the car. Uh, and so why is this relevant? Because when we're not paying attention and we default to the subconscious, we, start, we play the programs that are in the subconscious. And then I go, yeah, but the programs in the subconscious are primarily not yours. They came from other people. The, the, and most of them, as psychologists tell us, most of the programs we get are disempowering, self-sabotaging, and limiting. Yes. And the relevance about that is this. If I'm going to play those programs, then I'm, by definition, I'm going to be shooting myself in the foot. The reason why you play the subconscious programs is because the conscious mind's engaged with thinking, which is 95% of the time or more. 
And that means 95% of your behavior is invisible to you. And why I really wanted to emphasize this so much is this, because we believe we're victims. Oh, you know, I really wanted to be successful. I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to have a great relationship, and it's not working out. Yeah. And then you say, well, that was my intention, and it's not working, so therefore the world's against me. And then we go into victims like, God, I really wanted it, and it didn't happen. And I just wanted people to wake up because it basically is this. It's not the world against you at all. The world will give you everything. The issue is you're not operating from your conscious mind, except 5% at the most. And so your life is really a reflection of your subconscious programming. Now you say to me, well, I got programmed from the last trimester of pregnancy, the first seven years, so I was being programmed when I was one and two and three, and I go, absolutely. And you say, but what, what were the programs? I wasn't there. I have no idea what the hell the programs are. And I go, here's the neat part. 95% of your life is coming from the subconscious. So all you have to do is look at your life and just look at it and say, for what? I say, what comes to you that you want and it comes to you easily, you have programs to allow that to happen. But what you struggle with, what you work hard on, what you, you have to put a lot of effort into, why are you working so hard? And the answer is simple, because you have an invisible program that is sabotaging you from that point. So now all of a sudden you say, well, what do I need to change? I say, well, look at your life yes. and tell me what you're having trouble with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because that's the, the, the direct expression of a program that's not supporting you. There's always been a belief that the conscious and the subconscious minds are one and the same. So if I educate my conscious mind, then my subconscious mind should automatically know what the heck I just did. Yeah. Right? So then I say, well, yeah, guess what? How many self-help books did you read? And I go, oh, I read all these self-help books. I say, now that you read them, did your life change? And the answer is, no, not really. But I'm really smart because if you ask me any questions about the self-help book, I can answer it. I say, well, what's the issue? And the issue is this. The conscious mind is creative. So, yeah, I could read the book. I could watch this video with you in it. I could uh, even just go, aha, and the conscious mind could accept that and learn it. But the subconscious mind does not learn that way. And that has been the problem because we educate the conscious mind to get really smart and our life stays exactly the same as it is. And the issue is why? Because it doesn't translate from the conscious to the subconscious. Because the subconscious learns in, well, three to four fundamental ways. Number one, the first way it learned seven years was hypnosis because the brain was operating at a low vibrational frequency and just downloading what it saw. After you're seven, how do you learn? Habituation. How'd you learn the ABCs or the times table? You had to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and finally you got it and then you know how to do it. You want to drive a car? You have to practice and practice and then you learn how to do it. So if you want to change the subconscious mind, hypnosis is number one, that works. Uh, number two, repetition, habituation, yes. create a habit. And at first it seems like a struggle because it's new to the subconscious mind, but hey, you didn't learn ABCD the first time you said it, you know, you That's had to right. do it again and again. But after you do it for a repetition period, it will be so natural that if you're not doing it, your subconscious mind goes, hey, what's happening? We're not doing it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's really good. We overcome that. Um, a third way, which is um, very, uh, some people get it and it's very powerful, but I wouldn't recommend it, is tremendous emotional shock. <laughs> 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 Boom! Something happens in your life and it's so dramatic that after that moment, you're not going to be the same person. The subconscious got, got it right there, okay? Yeah. And the newer one and the better one is um, a whole new field of uh, uh, belief change modalities, which are also associated with what's called energy psychology. Yes. Uh, and, and these are wonderful uh, because basically uh, it's a form of super learning. 
And what's neat about it, the conventional things like hypnosis or habituation, there's a time element that takes a long time. But these new belief change modalities, uh, like a super learning experience, you can change a belief you've had your whole life, 50 years, and change it in 10 minutes. Yeah. And so this is really, it's really, it's a new type of psychology that's coming in, but it's really necessary because, as they say, uh, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Yep. We're running into a world that has a lot of necessity to change very, very quickly. So uh, we're really happy to see that there are ways of changing without going through all that anxiety and stress, and we can do it really quickly. My favorite one is the one that I use because I'm the most familiar with it, but there's yeah. many of them in my books. I give a whole list, but yeah. the one I, I use is called Psych-K, like the abbreviation of psychology. Yeah. It actually represents psychological kinesiology. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's an exercise where you, you get your right and your left brain hemispheres to work in harmony, which they don't do on a normal day-by-day basis. And when you get them to work in harmony, that's called brain synchronization, a window sort of opens up and you can drop in a new belief in five minutes. You know, it's really fun because you say, well, what if you can release these programs? And that's uh, the story of the matrix where I say, I take the red pill, I get out of the program. And I say, yeah, but in real life, every time we've taken that red pill, I say, what's the red pill in real life? And the answer is falling in love. Falling in love with the person or falling in love with uh, your creativity or whatever it is, falling in love. Because when you fall in love, what you're doing is so captivating and so engrossing and so desirable, you don't let your conscious mind wander. So the first time in your life, your conscious mind's staying present. And I said, well, why is that important? Conscious mind, wishes, desires, and aspirations. If you're operating from that mind, you manifest your wishes and desires. So my conclusion for all of this blah, blah, blah that I'm giving you is simply this. What if you go into the subconscious mind and change the programs in the subconscious mind so they reflect the wishes and desires of your conscious mind. What would that mean? And I'll tell you what it means. You'll live in a honeymoon for every day of your life on this planet for a simple reason. Yeah. If my conscious mind with wishes and desires begins to wander and I default into the subconscious and is playing my wishes and desires, I never left the honeymoon. Most people's stresses are not real uh, immediate emergency stresses at all. They're beliefs of a fear uh, that they won't have something, they won't have a job, they won't have food, they won't have a friend. Uh, And it's not that they don't have them right now, they're thinking about, oh, that happens! And that's where the stress comes from, and that's why 90% of the people are in fear because they, they recognize that their future is uncertain, but rather than seeing it in a positive way, they, they have a, a, you know, this image of a negative work, thing. Work it all out. And, and, yeah. and it's really interesting because, remember, when you fall in love and you get out of the programming, you create heaven on earth. Well, if it wasn't for the programming, everybody would have heaven on earth. Yes. So if we can change the programming, then heaven on earth is available. Tune in every Sunday from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on The Bottom Line with Joey L. On the new Evolution Radio Network.
love you, that mean you better Keep it one with me Yeah Some'll love you, some'll use you Nothing wrong with that as long as you know who's who Gemini, do what I want when I'm in the mood to Soon as they think you need something, that's when they lose you Soon as you know they need something, that's when you get them back Crazy when you know what they want, you never give them that Better to let her do a thing, I like to give her slack Smoke a little bit, but she drink, I like to get her smack Walk downstairs to the kitchen, I like to get her snack She get on my nerves, but I can live with that All the bullshit that I did, gotta consider that. She just keep applying the pressure into a nigga crack, crack. German engineering, she pulling up Time to get out of here, we did the hood enough As if a nigga ain't hood enough Nah baby, 99 ain't good enough What's up? You ain't gotta lie, just to ride being real You should try to just keep it one with me Real talk Should never be hard to be real when you keep it one Dap you up, just please. Uh, yeah. I gotta keep it real as the song is. Friends turning to brothers when they've been with you the longest. I know I ain't the brightest, I ain't saying you the wrongest. But the maintenance man already told us that they was on us. I thought I had a buyer for the peas, they ain't like those. Left them in your room, then you try to catch a flight, yo. Deep down in your heart, you know that wasn't right, bro. They fuck around and ran up in the crib, same night, yo. Six pounds of haze in your closet is what they see in there. 48K in my closet, I wasn't even there. Work wasn't mine, but the money sure was. What I should've knew was that it wasn't all love. Bailed out and told me you was gonna get the bread back. Your man was right there, he could tell you you said that. Had to separate, I can't do the pretend shit. The charges got thrown out. So did the friendship Just keep it one with me Word. You ain't gotta Word. lie Just to ride being real You should try to just keep it one with me Should never be hard to be real When you keep it one with me You ain't gotta lie Just to ride Just keep it one with me Should never be hard to be real When you keep it one with me you ain't gotta lie, just to ride being real You should try to just keep it one with me Should never be hard to be real when you keep it one with me You ain't gotta lie, just to ride, just keep it one with me Should never be hard to be real when you keep it one with me Don't even think about changing the station. You're listening to The Bottom Line with your host, Joey L. All right, all right. What's happening? Peace to the gods. Right here on the New Evolution Radio Network. This is The Bottom Line Sundays. Uh, it is 7.30, a little bit past the hour. Um, I welcome you to the show. Make sure that we in here. All right, yeah, we in here. All right, so peace to the gods. Welcome to the show. Uh, tonight, we will continue our conversation tonight. And our topic into Roe versus Wade um, and the corporate personhood. 
right? And um, last week was a pretty long show, so hopefully you had the opportunity to check out last week's show. Next week we will get back into uh, some commerce things, but um, I wanted to make sure that we took time to address these issues as they are important issues, and they do affect all of us, believe it or not. Um, all right, so real quick, let's just recap. Um, what we discussed last week, I think that that is important, right? And we talked about corporate personhood or uh, what's known as judicial personalities, which is basically the legal notion that what they call a judicial person, and a judicial person is a non-human legal person, okay? That is not a single natural person, but is considered an organization recognized by law as a fictitious person, all right? Um, and, and they consider babies or, or fetuses to be non-judicial persons, right? And so corporate personhood or judicial personality deals with judicial persons such as corporations, right? And this is separate from um, associated human beings, right? Like owners, managers, or employees, okay? Um, and then we get into the whole thing about natural persons, right? And in most countries, corporations have a right to enter into contracts with other parties. I mean, they can sue or they can be sued. Um, they can sue in court in the same way as a natural person or an unincorporated association of persons can, right? And so um, this conversation that is currently happening in the country is, is it's quite a convoluted one. Right? Because a lot of people don't understand what's really happening, right? They don't get it. And so um, we're going to go into some facts tonight, and then we'll listen to the second part of the case. It's a very important case, um, and maybe this will help to, you know, for those who do listen, will help them to understand why Roe versus Wade was overturned, right? Now, in the landmark ruling of Roe versus Wade, 14 U.S. 113-1973, the Supreme Court recognized the right to abortion, and they said that it was a fundamental liberty that was protected by the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Now, Roe versus Wade, and since then, the court has repeatedly reaffirmed the Constitution's protection for the essential liberty which guaranteed each individual the right to make personal decisions about family and childbearing. Now, um, you know, there was a point in time where contraceptions were made illegal. You couldn't buy condoms in certain places, right? And, you know, it came down to, you know, the, the most sanctified place is the bedroom, right? And to make a decision based on what happens in someone's bedroom, um, was intervening in their private rights. Okay? Now, accordingly, the court has made clear that it cannot dismiss right, the certain cost of overruling Roe for people who have ordered um, their thinking and living around the case. Now, Planned Parenthood, we talked about that last week, right, versus Casey, um, 505 U.S. 1992, right? Um, you know, it, it plays a, a major role in it. Right. And then over the decades since then, the court first held that the Constitution encompasses the protection for the right to abortion, including its most recent decision of whole women's health versus um, Hellerset. And then take a look at that case. Right. And that case was done 
Um, that case was done in 2016, um, and it was June 27th, 2016, right? And he recognized that without access to abortion, basically the right is meaningless. And Roe built on earlier cases in which the court held that the constitutional right to privacy protected the individual's right to reproductive autonomy. Okay? So basically saying that, hey, a woman has freedom, which is autonomy, to do what she chooses to with her body um, without the government interfering. Right Now, the fact that they're now putting it on the states to choose, right? to me it almost looks like it's almost you, – you could almost go back and say, well, the states can choose whether they want slavery or not, right? I mean you could almost liken it to that, right? Like they're trying to take us back to the dark ages, right? But Roe essentially, um, you know, it, it, it brought up the idea of the right to privacy, right? Roe was built on earlier cases in which the court held that the constitutional right to privacy – was protected as an individual right to autonomy, essentially, right? And so if you look at the Griswold versus Connecticut case in 1965, the court struck down a ban on the use of the sale of contraceptives to married couples because it violated the constitutional right to privacy, right? So once again, we go back to the right to privacy, right? And as you know, we teach private over here, and in, in public and private, they don't mix, you cannot mix the two. Right. Now, in another case, um, Eisendott versus Beard, 1972, the court extended this fundamental right to contraception to unmarried people, saying that, okay, if y'all not married, y'all can go out and get condoms. Now, a lot of Christians have problems with this. Why? Because it went against um, the religious principle, right? Now, out of respect for Christians, right? And and in other religions, right? This is not; these are not my personal opinions. These are the court's opinions. But we do have to respect the fact that we live in America, where people have the right to choose. That's just a fact. But there was a point in time in this country where, um, you're right, brother. It is like a paradox, right? It, it very much is. But the, but there there was a point in time in this country where where religion was at the forefront. Of political decisions Right so The court extended the fundamental right Of contraception to unmarried people Okay They elaborated on the right to privacy as quote And said that it was the right of the Individual married or Single to be born Excuse me to be free from unwarranted Governmental intrusion Into matters so fundamentally Affecting a person as the Decision whether to bear Or beget a child now, protecting access to abortion um, effectuates what they call vital constitutional values, including dignity, autonomy, equality, uh, bodily integrity, right? all of these different things. Right? Now, in its rulings on abortion, the court recognized the ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation, which has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. Okay. Um, this is in Casey 505 U.S. at 856. It further acknowledged that the heart of liberty is the right to define one's concept of existence, 
of meaning of the universe and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood where they were formed under the compulsion of the state. Okay? So three key cases uh, defines the constitutional protection for women's rights to abortion. Roe, uh, Roe Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey and Whole Women's, excuse me, Whole Woman's uh, Health versus uh, Hellerstedt. Right now, in Roe, the court struck down Texas criminal ban on abortion and held up the right to terminate a pregnancy as a fundamental right, 14 U.S. 155, along with decisions relating to marriage, contraceptions, education, family relationships, um, and the decision as to whether to terminate a pregnancy is a fundamental right to women's personal liberties. Okay? So... The court recognized the great detriment that the state would impose upon the pregnant woman by denying this choice, including forcing her to endure health risks associated with pregnancy and the cost of bringing the child into the family, not prepare for one. So, you know, I just saw, and, and this, this is really interesting because I just saw two situations like this. I saw one, um, it was it was one where, and I'll, I'll read it to you because it's important that we talk about this type of stuff, right? Um, so the first one here is um, there was a 10-year-old girl who essentially was forced to cross state lines to have a baby. Um, she was forced to cross state lines to have a baby because they overturned the law. And I don't know if she was raped or or what the situation was, but she was forced. They would not give her an abortion. Now, there's no way a 10-year-old girl should be having a baby, right? There's just no way. But they did that. Right, so they 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 basically say, hey, look, you had this baby as long as you live in the state. Okay, then um, another story that I saw was a woman, and I'll and I'll read you what she wrote. She says, I wasn't going to post about this, but it's so important that people see other perspectives, especially from someone that they know. She says, I'm currently 25 weeks pregnant with a baby girl. She, hold on. Sorry, y'all. She says, I'm currently 25 weeks pregnant with a baby girl. She is incompatible with life. I found out at 23 weeks that she wasn't going to make it. I knew then what I wanted to do. I, w- I knew I wanted to terminate. My baby is suffering inside of me, having seizures multiple times a day. I feel every single one. I knew I didn't want her to suffer any longer. I let my doctor know of choice of my choice, and he said he would schedule an induction for me. Well, Friday came along. And the overturned Roe versus Wade happened. I thought I would be okay. I thought the law would go into effect, wouldn't go into effect for a while. Sadly, that's not the case. I now have no choice. My doctor called me today and told me I have to remain pregnant until this baby dies inside of me or dies when she's born. What kind of sick country do we live in where we force a mom to feel her baby suffer every single day until her baby dies? Now I'm completely lost and torn and confused. I'm celebrating the overturn of Roe versus Wade. If you're celebrating the overturn of Roe versus Wade, then I hope you never have to go through this. This is not a time to be happy. We should all be grieving the loss of women's rights. This was posted by a woman June 29th, right? Now, the thing about this, and I, and I thought that this was interesting, is that is that she, she said, quote, and this is what she said. She says, I didn't think that the law would go into effect for a while. When did it become a law, right? It's not a law. The the federal government is taking its hands off of the issue, and they're leaving it to state rights is what they're doing, right? Okay, so there's that. Now, 
back to what we were talking about. Okay. Um, and, and you know, this is this this is such a and, and the brother's right, right? Yeah, she, yeah. <laughs> so they took her right of good health away. They did, brother. And 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 the, you know, that's the thing about it is. Just, they can do it to a child and then they turn around and they can do it to a grown woman right and I mentioned this right think about this there was a point in time where in this country men were forced to you know when we were in slavery right men were forced to have sex with women and then they would castrate you if you you know if if you got unruly they'd just cut your shit off Okay. Now, the court recognized the great detriment that the state would impose upon pregnant women by denying the choice, including forcing her to endure health risks associated with pregnancy and the cost of bringing a child into the family not prepared for one. So like other fundamental rights, the right to abortion, recognized in Roe, was subject to strict scrutiny, the highest level of constitutional inquiry, which required the infringement on the right to be narrowly tailored to severe uh, to to serve a compelling government interest. So there's that. Yeah, man. They said a baby had to die within her. They told her that the baby either had to die in her, or or essentially that she had to wait till she had the baby for the baby to die then. Now, listen, I've worked with disabled kids. Right, who had severe disabilities. Um, you know, I, I I worked with these kids as recently as last week, and I'm talking about you got you got kids out here, man, that are struggling with life that that ain't even 15, 16 years old, man. They struggling, right? And 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 listen, I'm not saying that these kids should have been aborted or anything like that. What I'm saying is that these kids, there's kids out here that are struggling. So can you imagine if a baby is having problems in the womb before they even get here? What kind of problems would they be having once they've actually come out of the womb? How much worse could it be? You see what I'm saying? See, the court recognizes two interests, potential life and women's health and announced that it would uh, use the trimester system to determine when each of these states' interests was compelling, basically disallowing state regulation of abortion in the first trimester, but permitting more regulation as pregnancy advanced. Okay. Now, over nearly 20 years between Roe and Casey, the court heard several abortion cases, but in Casey, the court addressed whether it should overturn this landmark decision of Roe Casey resulted in splintering opinions with no single opinion uh, garnering the majority support. So a majority of justices, however, voted against overturning Roe. Justice O'Connor, Souter, and Kennedy issued a controlling joint opinion affirming its central holding. They said, quote, a state may not prohibit any woman from making the ultimate decision to terminate her pregnancy before viability. Casey 505 U.S. 879. The Casey court elaborated that abortion involves the most intimate and personal choices a person can make in a lifetime. Choices central to personal dignity and autonomy and is central to the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. 
that we talked about the 14th Amendment last week, right, and how it, it is what they call corporate personhood. So there's that. Okay. Now, it emphasized the fundamental values of dignity and equality that the abortion rights reflects, observing that a woman's experience is, quote, too intimate and personal for the state to insist without more upon its own vision of the woman's role, however dominant that the vision has been in the course of our history and culture. The destiny of a woman must be shaped to a large extent of her own conception of her spiritual imperatives and her place in society. Listen, man, we, it's 2022. This ain't 1950s. This ain't 1960s. We have to look at this holistically. Okay? Now, although the court affirmed Rose holding, the states cannot ban abortion prior to viability. The joint opinion departed from strict scrutiny and adopted the undue burden standard to determine which restrictions were unconstitutional. So the less protective standard displaced uh, strict scrutiny to recognize more fully the state's interest throughout pregnancy and promising potential life. The undue burden standard thus aimed to give uh, real substance to the urgent claims of a woman to retain the ultimate control over her destiny and her body, okay, while per- permitting laws that were designed to inform her decisions. So there's that part. Right now, accordingly, the joint opinion explained that an undue burden exists, and therefore a, pervert, uh, a provision of law is invalid if its purpose or effect is to place a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion before the fetus attains viability. So we talked about this last week when we talked about whether or not um, that you know they they wanted to say does a fetus have consciousness? At what point? Do you main, do you attain and then maintain consciousness? Is it in the womb? Is it when you come out of the womb? Is it after after twenty three weeks? Some people say it's at fifteen weeks. Okay. Now Casey was challenged to an omnibus. A Pennsylvania law that imposed 24-hour mandatory delay on women seeking abortion. State-mandated information, uh, biased counseling intended to persuade women to choose childbirth over abortion, and parental consent and spousal notice mandates, among other requirements. In earlier cases, the court just struck down biased counseling and mandatory delay laws because they failed strict scrutiny. Now, applying the undue burden standard, however, Justice O'Connor, Scouter, and Kennedy upheld the mandatory 24-hour delay, biased counseling, and parental consent requirements, but struck down the requirement that a married woman's husband uh, had to be notified before in the, she obtained an abortion. This, I'm, I'm going to tell you straight up firsthand that um, I think that if, if a married woman decided to get an abortion and she was married, um, the husband also has a right to say in the matter, but ultimately, it's a woman's decision because it's her body. That's just what it is, right? That's not something, you know, like like Tupac said. We ain't, you know, you got no, uh, <laughs> we got no right to tell a man when and where to create one, right? Something like that, right? Because because we don't. Okay, so. Um, 
and, and when you look at this, right, and you have to look at this, like I said, holistically from the perspective of what it is, right? I'm, I'm not, I am pro-choice. I'm also pro-life, right? So I believe that life is, is, is very, um, the sentient life, right? You, you cannot replace a life, um, but there are certain situations where a pregnancy may not be conducive for life on this planet. Right, it's just a fact, right? Um, you know, it, it it breaks my heart to see kids in wheelchairs um, who will never talk or walk. You know, who have to get their ass wiped. Um, you know, because they'll never be able to do it for themselves. You know, they'll never be able to feed themselves. You know, I had a kid or this past week in a wheelchair that cried. You know, um, and, and and he and he didn't cry. You know, because of his condition, he he cried because the people that were taking care of him were were no longer going to be around, right? Because he was getting more help from people who weren't his family than people that were his family. That's pretty sad, right? But these are the types of things that we have to think about because of the repercussions that of the things that happen after a child is born. Has hundreds of incremental restrictions on abortion in courts. Evaluating constitutionality, right? These laws struggle to apply key features of the undue burden test. Some held that an abortion regulation is constitutional only when it actually promotes the interest that the state claims it does and advances the interest to an extent that outweighs the burdens the law imposes on abortion. So other courts conducted no such inquiry, maintaining an abortion regulation is constitutional if, quote, any conceivable rationale exists for its enactment. Okay. Now, between Casey and Whole Woman's Health, the Supreme Court heard just four cases challenging abortion restrictions, none of which provided a roadmap for how courts should determine what the laws impose an undue burden, right? Just last term. Whole Women's Health uh, supply the missing guidance. Whole Women's Health clarified that the undue burden test is a form of heightened scrutiny that requires the courts to undertake a meaningful review of abortion restrictions. So more specifically, it made clear that undue burden standard is a robust check on legislators that requires courts to examine whether abortion restrictions have benefits that outweigh the burdens they impose and strike them if they fall short. So to apply the test, courts must evaluate whether an abortion restriction actually furthers a valid state interest, and not just whether a state offers a plausible explanation about how the restriction might relate to its asserted interest. So in making this determination, a court cannot defer to a state's claims about how the law does or might further its interest, it must conclude its own independent inquiry based on the evidence presented in the case. Courts must then determine if the law confers benefits that outweigh the burdens it imposes on women and declare the law unconstitutional if it burdens and outweighs the benefit. So while engaging in this balancing, courts must take into effect into account whether the evidence based on is uh, is based scientifically and and reliable and has some type of methodology behind it. Right? So applying this standard in Whole Woman's Health, they struck down two parts of the Texas law uh, challenge, that challenged the case. And one was uh, admitting privileges, right? provisions requiring all abortion providers to obtain local hospital 
admitting privileges. And the other one was what they call ambulatory surgical centers, um, which were basically was a provision requiring every licensed abortion facility to meet hospital-like building standards. So while the state of Texas claimed that neither requirement offered any health or safety benefits, at the same time, evidence showed that they would cause most Texas clinics to close, leaving the state with just a few clinics clustered in urban areas and thousands of women without adequate access. So because the burdens outweigh the benefits, the court struck down both parts of the Texas law. So the victory in whole women's health uh, preserved abortion access for thousands of women in Texas and signaled that the laws similar to those challenged in the, in the case are unconstitutional. Moreover, the test announced in Whole Women's Health applies to a broad range of abortion restrictions and is not limited to those that were challenged in Texas or other similar laws. Okay. So what we're looking at here is a framework, a constitutional framework for, that with, with, for over four decades, women have relied on the protection of the court, which has repeatedly reaffirmed the Constitution and it affords uh, the right for women to have abortions, along with underlying principles of liberty, dignity, equality, equity, bodily integrity, okay, so on and so forth. So any nominee for this must recognize not only the Constitution that, it com- that basically that it encompasses a woman's right to abortion, but also that it affords the right to uh, the, the – excuse me. Let me, let me say that again, that the Constitution not only encompasses a woman's right to abortion, but also that it affords robust protection to that right. So what we're talking about is the fact that um, the overturning in a way to a lot of people looks like they're overturning and taking away a woman's constitutional liberties. I mean, you, listen, women are upset. Listen, rightfully so, okay? You, you cannot force um, your opinion of what a woman should do with her body, you know, on anybody just because of a religion. Church and state are separate. Right, a child is to, and we talked about this last week. A child is to be considered an essay, which means basically in being at a period commencing nine months previous to its birth. Okay, now the distinction between a woman being pregnant and being quick with the child is applicable mainly, if not exclusively, to criminal cases, and does not apply to cases of descent, devices, and other gifts. And a child would be considered uh, in being from conception to the time of its birth. In all cases where it will be for the benefit of such child to be so considered. So, you know, you have these different opinions where they say, well, you know, a woman is with a child from the time the child was conceived, even if it's as small as a tadpole. Okay. It's it's very interesting, right? Because the doctrine about real and legal personhood of the unborn form conception was basically enunciated um, by the state chief justice. Right, they they called it a fixed principle, and they called it quickening. <laughs> and, and the conclusion is not undermined uh, by the limited shifting, ultimately tra- transient relevance at, at at the common law of a child's being. Okay, so some some people call it an archaic view. All right. So there's, there's a lot here, right? And like I said, this is 
you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to get confused with my opinion versus what these courts are saying about it, right? Um, but Roe produced three reasons not to recognize unborn humans as persons. Um, it's, it's textual reasons is that the person, um, as used elsewhere in the Constitution, gave no assurance of what they call prenatal application which was uh, conceitedly inconclusive and in fact proves too much it was prag- it was a pragmatic reason okay and it was implausible that it was framed in question and not proposition okay and its historical context um, reason basically was a cluster of, of errors drawn solely from two articles right? no other writer on legal history ever cited it but um, the first article was written basically by general counsel of national abortion rights when I actually, um, and that was refuted. And then the second was so recent that no scholar had gotten to examine its sources. Okay, so sometimes they, they use shit like that, right? But it was, you know, it was highly scrutinized either way. So history deposes of any claim that abortion was a common law liberty. A preposterous claim whose uh, putative support is disproven, not least by the common law, in statutory history, and 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 Roe, we talk about Roe versus Wade, right? The post quickening abortion was ever firmly established as a common law crime. So so Roe uncritically reported Means' views that Coke, who himself participated as an advocate in abortion cases, may have intentionally misstated the law. Okay, so. This takes me back to what I was talking about in the beginning, and I know this is a lot to take in, especially if some of these words go over your head. But recognizing unborn children as persons requires no irregular remedies or unjust penalties. So recognizing unborn personhood will be a natural exercise of court's powers to bind parties to a case by applying the law to the facts, disregarding unconstitutional law directing lower courts and enjoining unlawful executive actions. So such a holding would bar lower courts from enjoining prosecutions or vacations, convictions of abortionists. Injunctions would uh, lie against officials asked to facilitate abortions, as in cases like Raza or Hardin, where guardians at Leiden would be appointed for the unborn as before Rome. Okay? So, you know, it's actually a, a remedy there. See, I think people don't understand there's a remedy in all the madness. The, the remedy lies in injunctions. It, it lies in estoppels. There are there are remedies out there. Okay? So equal protection allows states to treat different cases differently for a legitimate end. So states may consider degrees of culpability as, as uh, mitigating factors or, or altogether immunize the protection certain participants uh, in wrongful killings, right? And and here's such policy choices, um, severe legitimate purposes by fairly balancing the child's humanity and her unique physical dependence and impact on her mother and the mother's constitutional rights could require states to allow urgent or life-saving medical uh, interventions, even when these would unavoidably result in fetal death. So an enforcement responsibility will fall to the Congress. If they failed in their duties, which would follow a personhood holding, which with proportional legislation in sections five of the amendment to protect the unborn, okay, the court 
basically should reverse the judgment of the Fifth Circuit Court and hold that Mississippi's law is permissible and required because the unborn persons guaranteed equal protection and due process by the 14th Amendment. So so they're basically saying that, look, a, a fetus is the 14th Amendment, and you can't get rid of a baby because it's a 14th Amendment citizen before it even comes out to war. Do you see how the argument goes back and forth? And, and I agree with you, Solid Child. It is it is a paradox. It goes back and forth. And the, the real issue here, um, whether people want to admit it or not, is the 14th Amendment, right? Because if look, if we left this to the states, right, like just like if you left the decision of slavery to the states, you probably would still have slavery right now today, right? This issue, just like listen, next week we'll talk about the issue with the guns, even the gun right issue. All right, so what we'll do is we're going to take um, a very quick break, and then we're going to get into um, the last segment of of the case from last week. Um, and the, the case to overturn Roe versus Wade uh, is Thomas E. Dobbs, State Health Office, um, Officer of the Mississippi Department of Health uh, versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Case was um, it was started in December 2021. It was decided in June. All right, we're going to listen to the, the rest of this case, um, and then we'll open up the call lines if you want to ask any questions. All right, keep it locked right here on the bottom line. The Revolution Radio Network. Take you from the bottom to the tippy top. We'll be right back. Uh, the mighty set. Santana, what's up? More like a movement you need to be in tune with. Killer the dawn, what's good? Crack music, crack music. Diplomatic community, 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 community. Your favorite neighborhood drug dealers. <laughs> Where before we was dropping knowledge on samples, we listen. Cutting world when using bottles and samples. Few made it out, but I only recall a handful. Most got locked and turned the t-shirts and candles in them. Walls on with bodies pop up dead. Harlem. Big difference from the cops and the feds. Shut that out. A big difference from the dawn and drop head. I told them use it as my casket if I drop dead. Money, power, respect is what the lock said. He showed a lot of lock and respect is what the cops said. Fuck the cops. Paparazzi flicks on the six pegs. Click, click, click. Grammy bunch with the 40s by the rib cage. Put my jacks, we want to be this like Big Dave. RIP. I've been by roadies since the kids' age. Four, five, six, hop in the seven series. Thanks, sir. With drop top shit, I can see having clearly. Pray for me. Try to put them on the game, but they never hear me. Stu, baby, it's Texas, the closest that you're getting near me. Shit, cause life is so ferocious that it's getting scary. It's hard to stay focused, my eyes are getting teary Optimus, what up, nigga? Diplomatic community Hey, yo, Capo, what up, man? Community Wait, some talent shit, huh? Community Shit, almost got us Diplomatic community. After I fuck all these girls wanna spoil with me. Come get into with me. I'm shining like the sun and girl, you looking like the moon of me. Yes, you are. Your man a goon, he's scared to be in the room with me. That's detrimental. I don't deal with anything that's sentimental. Had cocaine in the rent. Nothing sweet, but all my sweets are presidential. Dead presidents, I'm done with residential. What I mean, man, I bought my own zip code. Oh, leave me alone, I go flip mode. Don't care if you black with a big nose, white with pig toes, just how the shit goes, the kid with the sick flow, jewelry, got Bruce Leroy, slash slick Rick Glow, fuck is you, Negro, 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 Negro,
at a point when the fetus acquires certain independent characteristics. But viability is dependent on medical technology and medical practice. It has changed. It may continue to change. No, Your Honor, it is principled because in ordering the interest at stake, the court had to set a line between conception and birth. And it logically looked at the fetus's ability to survive separately as a legal line because it's objectively verifiable and doesn't require the court to resolve the philosophical issues at stake. I just want to focus on stare decisis for a little bit. I found my colleague Justice Breyer's comments quite compelling. I'm not quite sure how they play out in Casey. It is certainly true that we cannot base our decisions on whether they're popular or not with the people. Casey seemed to say we shouldn't base our decisions not only on that, but whether they're going to seem popular. And it seemed to me to have a paradoxical conclusion that the more unpopular the decisions are, the firmer the court should be in not departing from prior precedent. It's sort of a super stare decisis. But it's super stare decisis for what are regarded as by many as the most erroneous decisions. Do you think there is that category or is it just normal stare decisis? I think it is precedent on precedent, Your Honor, because Casey did the stare decisis analysis for Rose. So the question before this court is whether that stare decisis analysis was egregiously wrong. And if I may answer your earlier question about whether viability was squarely at issue in Casey, it clearly was, Your Honor. At pages 869 to 871, the court squarely addressed viability because the government had made the argument that viability was arbitrary. I appreciate that Casey addressed it, but that's different than saying it was at issue. It said it was the central principle of Rose because it was pretty much all that was left after they were done dealing with the rest of it. And the regulations in Casey had no applicability or not depending upon where viability was. They applied throughout the whole range, period. So they didn't say anything about viability. It's like what Justice Blackmun said when discussing among his colleagues, which is a good reason not to have papers out that early, is that they don't have to address the line drawing at all in Rose. And they didn't have to address the line drawing at all in Casey. I disagree with that, Your Honor, because the undue burden test incorporates the viability line. That was what the court was assessing the regulations against, whether they imposed a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman before viability. And if a prohibition like this law isn't a substantial obstacle, then nothing would be. So the issue was squarely before the court. And in fact, the court said at page 879 that in adopting the undue burden test, it was not disturbing viability line. It's a very interesting question that I think Justice Barrett raised, too. It's usually just philosophical, but I think it has bite here. When I read Casey, it's not just one-on-one. You know, two is greater than one. Casey plus Rose is greater than one. They're making a point that we're an institution perhaps more than a court of appeals or a district court. It's Hamilton's point. No purse. No sword. And yet we have to have public support. 
And that comes primarily, says Casey. I wonder if it was O'Connor who wrote that. I don't know. But it comes primarily from people believing that we do our job. We use reason. We don't look to just what's popular. And that's where it seems very much. But the problem with the super case, of which we've heard three mentioned, the problem with the super case like this, the rare case, the watershed case, where people are really opposed on both sides, and they really fight each other, is they're going to be ready to say, no, you're just political. You're just politicians. And that's what kills us as an American institution. That's what they're saying. So we're looking at it for that, but we are looking to. And that, they say, is a reason why. A reason why. When you get a case like that, you better be damn sure the normal starry considerations, starry decisive overruling is, are really there in spades, double, triple, quadruple. And then they go through and show they're not. Okay? What's the paradox? Maybe you think I've just made an argument that there isn't one. But really, in my head, I'm thinking I'm not sure. There may be one. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I don't know if you've ever, if uh, when, when, when that occurred to you, I don't want to overrule the starry. I wouldn't want the court to overrule the starry decisive section of Casey, you say. And that, that's, what, that's what I think is being brought up. And maybe I haven't made it clearer, but I've tried to. <laughs> yes, Your Honor. I think the point that the court was making was that the fact that some states may continue to enact laws in the teeth of the court's precedent has never been enough of a reason to overrule. And that's true for a number of decisions that the court has issued. The fact that some people continue to disagree with them is not a basis to discard that precedent. Justice Thomas, any further? <clears throat> Back to my original question. Um, if I were, I know your interest here is in abortion. I understand that. But if I were to ask you what constitutional right protects the right to abortion, um, is it privacy? Is it autonomy? What would it be? It's liberty, Your Honor. It's the uh, textual protection in the 14th Amendment that a state can't deprive a person of liberty without due process of law. And the court has interpreted liberty to include the right to make family decisions and the right to physical autonomy, including the right to end a previability pregnancy. So it's all of the above. Well, that's how the court has interpreted the Liberty Clause for over 100 years in cases going back to Meyer, Griswold, Carey, Loving, Lawrence. Yeah, but uh, I mean, all of those sort of just come out of Lochner. The, so it's, uh, we, we've dropped part of it. So I understand what you're saying, but what I'm trying to focus on is if we is to lower the level of generality, or at least be a little bit more specific. In the old days, we used to say it was a right to privacy that the court found in the uh, due process, substantive due process clause. Okay. So, or in substantive due process. And I'm trying to get you to tell me what are we relying on now? Is it privacy? Is it autonomy? What is it? I think 
liberty continues to be liberty and the right exists whatever level of generality the court applies. There was um, a tradition under the common law for centuries of women being able to end their pregnancies. But in addition, when it comes to decisions related to family, marriage, and childbearing, the court has done the analysis at a higher level of generality. And that makes sense because otherwise the Constitution would reinforce the historical discrimination against women. Justice Spire? Justice Alito? Well, you just mentioned the common law, so let me ask you a couple of questions about history. Did any state constitutional provision recognize that abortion was a right, liberty, or immunity in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was adopted? No, Your Honor, but it had been allowed under the common law for many years. Uh, does any judicial decision at that time uh, or shortly or immediately after 1868 recognize that abortion was a right, liberty, or immunity? There were state high court decisions shortly before then, Your Honor, talking about the ability of women to end pregnancy before quickening. What's your best case? For the right to end a pregnancy, Your Honor? Mm-hmm. Um, allowing a state to take control of a woman's body and force her to undergo the physical demands, risks, and life-altering consequences of pregnancy is a fundamental deprivation of her liberty. And once the court recognizes that that liberty interest deserves heightened protection, it does need to draw a workable line, and viability is a line that logically balances the interests at stake. The brief for the American Historical Association says that abortion was not legal before quickening in 26 out of 37 states at the time when the 14th Amendment was adopted. Is that correct? That is correct, because some of the states had started to discard the common law at that point because of a discriminatory view that a woman's proper role was as a wife and mother, a view that the Constitution now rejects, and that's why it's appropriate to do the historical analysis at a higher level of generality. In the face of that, can it be said that the right to abortion is deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the American people? Yes, it can, Your Honor. Again, at the founding, women were able to end their pregnancy under the common law. And in fact, this court in Glucksburg specifically discussed Casey as a decision based on history and tradition. And at note 19, specifically called out and relied on Roe's conclusion that at the time of the founding and well into the 1800s, women had the ability to end a pregnancy. What was the, the principal source that the court relied on in Roe? for its historical analysis. Who was the author of that that article? I apologize, Your Honor, I don't remember the author. I know that the court spent many pages of the opinion doing a historical analysis. There's also a brief on behalf of um, several key American historian associations that go through that history in detail because there's even more information now that supports Rose's legal conclusion. All right, thank you. I think the other side would say that the core problem here is that the court uh, has been forced by the position you're taking and by the the cases to pick sides on uh, the most contentious social debate in American life and to do so in a situation where they say uh, that the Constitution is neutral on the question of abortion, the text and history, the Constitution's neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion, uh, and they would say, therefore, it should be left to the people, to the states, um, or, or to Congress. Uh, 
and I think they also then continue, because the Constitution is neutral, that this court should be scrupulously neutral on the question of abortion, neither pro-choice nor pro-life. But because they say the Constitution doesn't give us the authority, we should leave it to the states, and we should be scrupulously neutral on the question. And that they are saying here, I think, that we should return to a position of neutrality uh, on that contentious social issue rather than continuing to pick sides on that issue. So I think that's, at a big-picture level, their argument. I want to give you a chance to respond to that. Yes, a few points, if I may, Your Honor. First, of course, those very same arguments were made in Casey, and the court rejected them, saying that um, the philosophical disagreements can't be resolved in a way that a woman has no choice in the matter. And second, I don't think it would be a neutral position. The Constitution provides a guarantee of liberty. The court has interpreted that liberty to include the ability to make decisions related to childbearing, marriage, and family. Women have an equal right to liberty under the Constitution, Your Honor, and if they're not able to make this decision. If states can take control of women's bodies and force them to endure months of pregnancy and childbirth, then they will never have equal status under the Constitution. And uh, I want to ask a question about stare decisis uh, and to think uh, about how to approach that here, because there have been lots of questions picking up on Justice Barrett's questions and others. Um, and history helps think about stare decisis as I've looked at it and uh, the history of how the courts applied stare decisis. And when you really dig into it, um, history tells a somewhat different story, I think, than is sometimes assumed. Think about some of the most important cases, the most consequential cases in this court's history. There's a string of them where the cases overruled precedent, round the board, uh, outlawed separate but equal. Uh, Baker versus Carr which set the stage for one person, one vote. West Coast Hotel, which recognized the state's authority to regulate business. Miranda versus Arizona, which required police to give warnings when the right to about the right to remain silent and to have an attorney present to suspects in criminal custody. Lawrence v. Texas, which said that the state may not prohibit same-sex conduct. Knapp versus Ohio held that the exclusionary rule applies to state criminal prosecutions to exclude evidence obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Gideon versus Rain Wainwright, which guaranteed the right to counsel in criminal cases. Obergefell, which recognized the constitutional right to same-sex marriage. In each of those cases, and that's uh, a list and I could go on, and those are some of the most consequential and important in the court's history, the court overruled uh, precedent. And um, it turns out uh, if the court in those cases had, had listened and they were presented in ar with arguments in those cases, adhere to precedent in Brown v. Board, adhere to Plessy on uh, West Coast Hotel, adhere to Atkins, and adhere to Lochner. And if the court had done that in those cases, uh, you know, this, the country would be a much different place. So... I assume you agree with most, if not all, the cases I listed there where the court overruled the precedent. So the question uh, on stare decisis is why if, and I know you disagree with what I'm about to say in the if, if we think that uh, the prior precedents are seriously wrong, if that, 
why then doesn't the history of this court's practice with respect to those cases tell us that the right answer is actually to return to the position of neutrality and uh, and um, not stick with those precedents in the same way that all those other cases didn't? Because of the view that a previous precedent is wrong, Your Honor, has never been enough for this court to overrule, and it certainly shouldn't be enough here when there's 50 years of precedent. Instead, the court has required something else, a special justification, and the state doesn't come forward with any special justification. It makes the same exact arguments the court already considered and rejected in its very decisive analysis in Casey, and in fact, there is nothing different. There is no less need today than 30 years ago or 50 years ago for women to be able to make this fundamental decision for themselves about their bodies, lives, and health. Thank you. Justice Barrett? I want to ask you a follow-up question. You know, the chief was asking you about the viability line and if that was the right place, if that's the right line to draw. So let's take it out of the question of stare decisis and imagine that there's a state constitution that's identical to the 14th Amendment's due process clause. Um, and a state Supreme Court has to decide as a matter of state constitutional law um, what the scope of an abortion right is. And the second trimester ends at 27 weeks. And so that state Supreme Court says, we think that the right exists, you know, in, a, in, a, in an absolute sense that the state cannot take away the right up to 27 weeks. And then after that, adopts an undue burden standard. As a matter of first principles, is that line acceptable as a matter of constitutional law? Your Honor, it, it may be, but I think that the question in this case is, is whether a line is obviously more principled or obviously more workable than viability because of the scary defective content. Why, I mean, that's the row framework, basically the trimester. Why wouldn't that be workable if you pick a line and say the end of the second trimester, 27 weeks, third trimester, state's interests increase. I don't understand why 27 weeks is less workable than 24. I'm not trying to suggest it is, Your Honor. And what I was trying to suggest is that the viability line is a principled and workable line. So to change it, there would have to be a new line that's obviously more principled and more workable. And, and the line that the court has drawn actually- But that's um, sorry to say this. I'm asking as a matter of first principles. As a matter of first principle, the viability line makes sense because if the, con the state constitution- As a matter of saying, prudential judgment, it's not- constitutionally required as a matter of first principles, because in fact, we could decide to be more protective and say 27 weeks under the second trimester. You could, Your Honor, but the, the viability line makes sense given the protection for liberty because it, it comes from the woman's liberty interest in resisting state control of her body. And once the court recognizes that interest, it does need to draw a line as it does in many other constitutional contexts like the Fourth and Fifth Amendment. And the viability line, as I mentioned, makes sense because it focuses on the fetus's ability to survive separately, which is an appropriate legal line because it's objectively verifiable and doesn't delve into philosophical questions about when life begins. Thank you, counsel. General Prelogger. Mr. Chief Justice, the court. For a half century, this court has correctly recognized that the Constitution protects a woman's fundamental right to decide whether to end a pregnancy before viability. That guarantee that the state cannot force a woman to carry a pregnancy to term and give birth has engendered substantial individual and societal reliance. 
the real-world effects of overruling Roe and Casey would be severe and swift. Nearly half of the states already have or are expected to enact bans on abortion at all stages of pregnancy, many without exceptions for rape or incest. Women who are unable to travel hundreds of miles to gain access to legal abortion will be required to continue with their pregnancies and give birth with profound effects on their bodies, their health, and the course of their lives. If this court renounces the liberty interests recognized in Roe and reaffirmed in Casey, it would be an unprecedented contraction of individual rights and a stark departure from principles of stare decisis. The court has never revoked a right that is so fundamental to so many Americans and so central to their ability to participate fully and equally in society. The court should not overrule this central component of women's liberty. Uh, General, would you specifically tell me, uh, uh, specifically uh, state what the right is? Is it specifically abortion? Is it uh, liberty? Is it autonomy? Is it privacy? The right is grounded in the liberty component of the 14th Amendment, Justice Thomas, but I think that it promotes interest in autonomy, bodily integrity, liberty, and equality. And I do think that it is specifically the right to abortion here, the right of a woman to be able to control without the state forcing her to continue a pregnancy, whether to carry that baby to term. I understand we're talking about abortion here, but what is confusing is that we, if, if we were talking about the Second Amendment, I know exactly what we're talking about. If we're talking about the Fourth Amendment, I know what we're talking about because it's written, it's there. What specifically is the right here that we're talking about? Well, Justice Thomas, I think that the court in those other contexts with respect to those other amendments has had to articulate what the text means and the bounds of the constitutional guarantees. And it's done so through a variety of different tests that implement First Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights. So I don't think that there is anything unprecedented or anomalous about the right that the court articulated in Rowan Casey and the way that it implemented that right by defining the scope of the liberty interest uh, by reference to viability and providing that that is the moment when the balance of interest tips and when the state can act to prohibit a woman from, from getting an abortion based on its interest in protecting the fetal life at that point. So the right specifically is abortion. It's the right of a woman prior to viability to control whether to continue with a pregnancy, yes. Thank you. I am interested in Justice Kavanaugh's long litany of cases in which we've overruled precedent, and we have. Yet you did call this unprecedented. Um, as I see the structure of the Constitution, the body of it is the relationship of the three branches of government. And then there is the relationship of the federal government to the state. And through our incorporation of the 14th Amendment of the state vis-a-vis -vis the individual, it's the federal government and the state's relationship to individuals. And I see the Bill of Rights, including the 14th Amendment, as basically setting the limits, giving individual freedom to do certain things and stopping the government from intruding um, in those liberties, in those Bill of Rights, correct? 
of all of the decisions that Justice um, Kavanaugh listed, all of them virtually, except for maybe one, involved us recognizing and overturning um, state control over issues that we said belong to individuals. The right in Miranda to be warned was an individual right, correct? That's right, Justice Sotomayor, and I think that that is a key distinction with the list of precedents that Justice Kavanaugh was relying on. I think that there are really two key distinctions, and the first is that in the vast majority of those cases, the court was actually taking the issue away from the people and saying that it had been wrong before not to recognize a right. I think that matters because it goes straight to reliance interests. Here, the court would be doing the opposite. It would be telling the women of America that it was wrong, that actually the ability to control their bodies and perhaps the most important decision they can make about whether to bring a child into this world is not part of their protected liberty. And I think that that would come at tremendous cost to the reliance that women have placed on this right and on societal reliance and what this right has meant for furthering reliance equality. Reliance is a good point, and this may be my fault. I'm talking about pages 854 to 863 in the Casey case, and I've already used up too much time. I can't read those pages out loud, but they do not include the list that Justice Kavanaugh had. They do include is Brown, and the second one uh, is uh, West Coast Hotel versus Parrish, and you could add the gay rights cases as a third, which would fit the criteria. But there are complex criteria that she's talking about that link to the position in the rule of law of this court. So all I would say is you have to read them before beginning to say whether they are overruling or not overruling in the sense meant there, calling for special concern. They say in those, maybe I'd mentioned too, wait a minute, of course Plessy was wrong when decided, but just a minute. Also remember, Plessy said that separate but equal is a badge of inferiority. Uh, No, they said it isn't. All you have to do is open your eyes and look at the South, my friend, and you will see whether it was or it wasn't in 1954. And they made a similar point. They said, are you gonna sit here in the middle of the depression and tell me that, that uh, Lochner, with its uh, other cases, and pure, just about pure, uh, uh, laissez-faire, that we can run the country that way. I mention that because I want people to read those 15 pages with care. <laughs> and that's why I said that. If you had anything to add to my plea to read it, please do. Justice Breyer, I agree completely. I have read those pages and reread them many times, and I think that this is actually another key distinction from the cases that Justice Kavanaugh was referring to, and that is, as I understand those passages in Casey, the court carefully walked through each and every stare decisis factor that this court focuses on. It looked at workability of the viability rule, doctrinal underpinnings, legal and factual developments, and critically reliance interests. And down the line, it found that the case for reaffirming Roe was overwhelming. And in that situation, when every factor that the court consults to determine whether to retain precedent counsels in favor of retaining it, I think Casey properly perceived that a decision to overrule nevertheless 
perhaps based on inclusion, the conclusion that the justices thought the case was wrongly decided in the first instance would run counter to the ability of stare decisis to function as a cornerstone of the rule of law in this context. Is it your argument that a case can never be overruled simply because it was egregiously wrong? I think that at the very least, the state would have to come forward with some kind of materially changed circumstance or some kind of materially new argument, and Mississippi hasn't done so in this case. Really? So suppose Plessy v. Ferguson was re-argued in 1897, so nothing had changed. Would it not be sufficient to say that was an egregiously wrong decision on the day it was handed down, and now it should be overruled? It certainly was egregiously wrong on the day that it was handed down, Plessy, but what the court said in analyzing Plessy to Brown and Casey was that what had become clear is that the factual premise that underlay the decision, this idea that segregation didn't create a badge of inferiority, had been entirely mistaken. So is it your answer that we needed all the experience from 1896 to 1954 to realize that Plessy was wrongly decided? Would you answer my question, had it come before the court in 1897, should it have been overruled or not? I think it should have been overruled, but I think that the factual premise was wrong in the moment it was decided, and the court realized that and clarified that when it overruled. So there are circumstances in which a decision may be overruled, properly overruled, when it must be overruled, simply because it was egregiously wrong at the moment it was decided. Well, I think every other story factor likewise would have justified overruling in that interest, that actually it would run counter to any notion of reasonable reliance. It was not a workable rule, that it had become an outlier in our understanding of fundamental freedoms. There was a lot of reliance on Plessy. The South built up a whole society based on the idea of white supremacy. So there was a lot of reliance. It was improper reliance. It was reliance on an egregiously wrong understanding of what equal protection means. But your answer is, I still don't understand, I still don't have your answer clearly. Can a decision be overruled simply because it was erroneously wrong, even if nothing has changed between the time of that decision and the time when the court is called upon to consider whether it should be overruled? Yes or no? Can you give me a yes or no answer on that? This court, no, has never overruled in that situation just based on a conclusion that the decision was wrong. It has always applied the stare decisis factors and likewise found that they weren't overruling in that instance. And Casey did that. It applied the stare decisis factors. If stare decisis is to mean anything, it has to mean that that kind of extensive consideration of all of the same arguments for whether to retain or discard a precedent itself is an additional layer of precedent that needs to be relied on and can form a stable foundation of the rule of law. General, you've talked a number of times about the reliance interests here, and I think I'd like you to say a little bit more about that. Because, you know, sometimes when we talk about reliance interests, it's like there's a rule of law and you look at it and you say, oh, somebody will enforce my contract because of this rule. And it has a very kind of grounded quality to it. And as Casey talked about the reliance interests here, they're a little bit more airy. And I just wanted to get your sense of what are the reliance interests here and how do they cash out on the ground? 
there are multiple reliance interests here, as I think Casey correctly recognized. Casey pointed to the individual reliance of women and their partners who had been able to organize their lives and make important life decisions against the backdrop of having control over this incredibly consequential decision whether to have a child. And people make decisions in reliance on having that kind of reproductive control, decisions about where to live, what relationships to enter into, what investments to make in their jobs and careers. And so I think on a very individual level, there has been profound reliance. And it's certainly the case that not every woman in America has needed to exercise this right or has wanted to, but one in four American women have had an abortion. And for those women, the right secured by Roe and Casey has been critical in ensuring that they can control their bodies and control their lives. And then I think there's a, a second dimension to it that Casey also properly recognized, and that's the societal dimension. That's the, the understanding of our society, even though this has been a controversial decision, that this is a liberty interest of women. It's the case that not everyone agrees with Roe versus Wade, but just about every person in America knows what this court held. They know how the court has defined this concept of liberty for women and what control they will have in the situation of an unplanned pregnancy. And for the court to reverse course now, I think would uh, run counter to that societal reliance and the very concept we have of what equality is guaranteed to women in this country. It is certainly true that um, there can be some plan by some people about pregnancy. People who are raped don't have a choice, whether it's by an outsider or their own husband. And not everybody can afford contraceptives, contrary to um, the, the, your adversary's brief. Um, in fact, 19% um, of the women in Mississippi are uninsured, so they don't have money to pay for contra contraceptives. So, um, but why their point in their brief was, you know, contraceptives, if you use them, the failure rate is very small, et cetera, et cetera. How can there be real reliance? So could you address that issue? Of course. So first, this is not a, a new circumstance since Roe and Casey. Contraceptives existed in 1973 and in 1992. And still the court recognized that unplanned pregnancies would persist and deeply implicate the liberty interest of women. But I think even on the facts, the state is mistaken here. A contraceptive failure rate in this country is at about 10% using the most common methods. That means that women using contraceptives, approximately one in 10 will experience an unplanned pregnancy in the first year of use alone. About half the women who have unplanned pregnancies were on contraceptives in the months that that occurred. And so I think the idea that contraceptives could make the need for abortion uh, dissipate is just contrary to the factual reality. You also mentioned, or maybe it was your co-counsel, um, that uh, life changes for women after 15 weeks. That's exactly right, Justice Sotomayor, and I think that this is responsive as well to the questions that the Chief Justice was asking about, in particular, the impact of enforcing a 15-week bar in this case. The court has always looked at that issue by looking at the people for whom the laws are restriction, not those for whom it's irrelevant. So the question is, why would women need access to abortion after 15 weeks, and what is the effect on them? And there are any number of women who cannot get an abortion earlier. They don't realize that they're pregnant. Uh, that's especially true of women who are young or don't have uh, haven't experienced a pregnancy before or their life circumstances change as you refer to justice sotomayor they lose their job or their relationship breaks apart or they have medical complications 
or for many women, they don't have the resources to pay for it earlier. It takes time for them to raise the money or make the uh, appropriate logistical arrangements to be able to take time off work and travel and have childcare. And for all those women in this category who need access to abortion after 15 weeks, the fact that other women were able to exercise their constitutional rights does nothing to diminish the impact on their liberty interests in forcing them to continue with that pregnancy. Thank you. Uh, General, uh, following up on that, um, would that argument be true uh, in terms of viability as well? In other words, your discussion of the reliance interests and the ability of um, women and men to control their lives in reliance on um, uh, right to to an abortion, the argument would not be as strong, I think you'll have to concede, uh, given what we're talking about, which is not a prohibition. It's a 15-week uh, line. Uh, is that right? But you, you have to hypothesize people who have planned their lives according to a 24 or whatever week limit uh, it is but not a 15-week limit on abortion, right? Well, I don't think the court has ever analyzed reliance uh, with that kind of parsing. I think here the, I, the, the force of the viability line is that it's clearly demarcated the scope of a woman's protected liberty interest in this context. And the state is not actually asking this court to replace it with a clear 15-week line that would provide some measure of continued protection for this right. They're asking the court to reverse the liberty interest altogether or leave it up in the air. And if that were to happen, then immediately states with six-week bans eight-week bans, 10-week bans, and so on, would seek to enforce those with no continued guidance of what the scope of the liberty interest is going forward. Well, that may be what they're asking for, but the thing that is at issue before us today is 15 weeks. And um, I just wonder what the strength of your reliance arguments, um, which sounded to me like being based on a total prohibition, uh, would be if there isn't a total prohibition. And as far as viability goes, I don't see what that has to do with the question of choice at all. Well, I think as Casey emphasized in reaffirming the viability line, the court justified that as having both a logical and a biological justification that it marks the point in pregnancy when the fetus is capable of meeting the That's what John Hart Ely explained was a complete syllogism. That's the definition of viability. It's not a reason that viability is a good line. Well, it's focused on the idea of fetal separateness, and I think that that is a line that also accords with the history and tradition in this country of abortion regulation, contrary to the state arguments here at the time of the founding and for most of early American history, women had an an ability to access abortion in the early stages of pregnancy, and it was only when the fetus was deemed sufficiently separate that states could act to bar that. So I think that the viability line also aligns with history and tradition in that respect. Mr. Thomas? Uh, You heard my uh, question to counsel uh, earlier about Uh, the woman who was convicted of criminal child neglect. What would be your reaction to that uh, as far as her liberty and whether or not the liberty interest that we're talking about extends to her? Well, Justice Thomas, I have to confess that I haven't read the specific case you're referring to, but if I understand the question you were posing, it, it sounds as though the state is seeking to regulate 
for a child that's been born that was injured while it was inside the womb. And I think that we are not denying that a state has an interest there. We're not denying that a state has an interest here either. Roe recognized that states have interests that exist from the outset of pregnancy. But with respect to this specific right to abortion, there are also profound liberty interests of the woman on the other side of the scale and not being forced to continue with a pregnancy, not being forced to endure childbirth and to have a child out in the world. And the state's arguments here seem to ask this court to look only at its interests and to ignore entirely those incredibly weighty interests of the woman on the other side. Thank you. Justice Barnett? Justice Gorsuch, any further? I just want to make sure I understand your response to the Chief Justice. Um, if this court will reject the viability line, do you see any other intelligible principle that the court could choose? Well, I think that it would be critically important, even if this court were to reject the viability line, to reinforce and reaffirm the fundamental and profound liberty interests at stake here. And I'm sorry for interrupting, but that wasn't my question. I understand. I understand. I understand that point fully. By the end of this argument, that is deeply clear to me. I understand your position. I'm just asking a question about whether you think there would be another alternative line that the government would propose um, or not. And you even emphasize that if 15 weeks were approved, then we'd have cases about 12 and 10 and 8 and 6. And so my question is, is there a line in there that the government believes would be principled or not? I don't think there's any line that could be more principled than viability. Uh, you know, I think the factors the court would have to think about are what is most consistent with precedent, what would be clear and workable, and what would preserve the, the essential components of the liberty interest. And viability checks all of those boxes and has the advantage as well as being a rule of law for 50 years. Thank you. That's helpful, counsel. Appreciate it. Justice Kavanaugh? <clears throat> uh, you, you make a very forceful argument. And... Uh, identify critically important interests that are at stake in this issue. No doubt about that. Um, the other side says, though, that there are two interests at stake, that there's also the interest in, in fetal life uh, at stake as well. And in your brief, you say that the existing framework accommodates, that's your word, both the interest of the pregnant woman and the interest of the fetus. And, and the problem I think the other side would say, and the reason this issue is hard uh, is that you can't accommodate both interests. Um, you have to pick. That's the fundamental problem. And one interest has to prevail over the other uh, at any given point in time. And that's why this is so challenging, uh, I think. And the question then becomes, uh, what does the Constitution say about that? And I just want to get your reaction to what the other side's theme is, and I've mentioned it in my prior questions. Uh, when you have those two interests at stake, and both are important, as you acknowledge, um, why not? Why should this court be the arbiter rather than uh, Congress, the state legislatures, state Supreme Courts, the people being able to uh, – resolve this, and there'll be different answers in Mississippi and New York, uh, different answers in Alabama than California, um, because there are two different interests at stake, and the people in those states might value those interests somewhat differently. Uh, why is that not the right answer? 
Justice Kavanaugh, it's not the right answer because the court correctly recognized that this is a fundamental right of women. And the nature of fundamental rights is that it's not left up to state legislatures to decide whether to honor them or not. And it's true different rules would prevail throughout the country if this court were to overrule Roe and, Wade, Roe and Casey. But what that would mean is that women in those states who are refusing uh, to honor their rights and who are forcing them to continue to use their bodies to sustain a pregnancy and then to bring a child into the world will have no recourse other than to travel if they're able to afford it uh, or to attempt abortion outside the confines of the medical system or to have a child, uh, even though that was not the best choice for them and their family. Thank you. Justice Barrett? Um, I have a follow-up to Justice Kagan's question about reliance. I'm just trying to nail down, and, and I asked um, Ms. Rickleman this question, too, but I'm not sure that I fully understand the government's position or um, Ms. Rickleman's position. So on pages 18 and 19 of your brief, you talk about reliance interests, and you quote some of the language from Casey about a woman's ability to participate in the social and economic life of the nation. And I mentioned the safe haven laws to Ms. Rinkleman, and it, it seems to me I fully understand the reliance interests there, the airy ones Justice Kagan was referring to, and then there are the more uh, me, specific ones um, about a woman's access to abortion as a backup form of birth control in the event that contraception fails so that she need not um, bear the burdens of pregnancy. But what do you have to say to petitioner's argument that those reliance interests do not include the reliance interests of parenting and bringing a child into the world when maybe that's not the best thing for her family or her career. I think the state is wrong about that. And I, I think where the analysis goes wrong and reliance on those safe haven laws is overlooking um, the, the consequences of, of forcing a woman uh, upon her, the choice of having to decide whether to give a child up to, for adoption. That itself is its own monumental decision for her. And so I think that there's nothing new about the safe haven laws, the, or, or at least nothing new about the availability of adoption as an alternative. Roe and Casey already took account of that fact, and I think that there are certainly, of course, all of the, the bodily integrity interests that we've referred to, but also the autonomy interests retain in force as well. Okay, so it's the, the reliance interests and the right to be able to choose to terminate the pregnancy rather than having to terminate the parental rights. I think that that is part of it, yes. And I think for many women, that is an incredibly difficult choice, but it's one that this court for 50 years has recognized must be left up to them based on their beliefs and their conscience and their determination about what is best for the course of their lives. Thank you, General. Thank you, General. Uh, rebuttal, General Stewart. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'd like to do my best to make three points. Um, first, uh, picking up uh, where, where you just left off, Justice Barrett, on safe haven laws, um, the respondents in this case, I, I believe, as Your Honor pointed out, have emphasized parenting burdens being a, a lead or the lead um, reason that women seek abortions. I would emphasize safe haven laws, as best I've been able to find, first came into existence in 1999 in Texas. They're now ubiquitous, and you're correct, Justice Barrett, that they relieve that huge burden. I would also add that as to, as to uh, burdens um, during pregnancy, um, I would emphasize that contraception is more accessible and affordable and uh, available than it was at the time of uh, Roe or Casey. It serves the same goal of allowing women to decide if, when, and how many children to have. Um, and I would also note, um, just frankly, the lowest cost abortion at Jackson Women's Health is $600 for the abortion. Um, 
additional costs and further fees. According to, to my friends, the respondents and their amici, there are also additional costs related to travel, taking off time, time off of work, accommodations, all of those sorts of things. Um, whether somebody is uninsured or not, um, the costs of contraception are consistently significantly less than those. Number two, I, I think, you, Justice Kavanaugh, you had it exactly right when you, when you used the term scrupulously neutral. I think that's a very good description of what we're asking for here. I think it's um, the problem and the value that has evaded the court and will continue to evade this court under Roe and Casey, but that is exa exactly right. This is a hard issue. It involves, and, and I would emphasize, Your Honor, that as you said, there are interests here on, on both sides. There are interests for everyone involved. This is unique for the woman. It's unique for the unborn child, too, whose life is at stake in all of these decisions. It's unique for us as a society in how we decide if the states get to, get, get to legislate on this issue, how to decide and how to weigh these tremendously momentous issues. In closing, I would say that in his dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, Justice Harlan emphasized that there is no caste system here. The humblest in our country is the peer of the most powerful. Our Constitution neither knows nor tolerates distinctions on the basis of race. It took 58 years for this court to recognize the truth of those realities in a decision, and that was the greatest decision that this court ever reached. We're, we're running on 50 years of row. It is an egregiously wrong decision that has inflicted tremendous damage on our country and will continue to do so and take innumerable human lives unless and until this court overrules it. We ask the court to do that so in this case and uphold the state's law. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, General. Counsel, the case is submitted. All right, all right. That's the case. It took us two weeks to get to it. It's a uh, interesting topic. Um, will we say lightweight? All these women's health is at stake. You know, that's a good question. The health, uh, you know, uh, uh, health is health is a major issue. I don't even think that they even touched on health. You know, um, you know, like one of the things that we first mentioned earlier in the show was, you know, for instance, like the ten-year-old girl I saw on CNN earlier today, a ten-year-old a ten, a girl. Um, I think she was raped or something like that, and they were telling her that she was, you know, either she was going to have the baby, and if not have the baby, she had to go to another state. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, this this is a, a very convoluted issue. It's a very convoluted issue. Um, you know, and the, the reality is, is now it's been left up to the states. You know, it, 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 it's a state rights thing now. You know, and unfortunately, um, you know, this is this is the reason why the Fourteenth Amendment has flaws in it. Because the old argument was that the Fourteenth Amendment, you know, protected. When you're right, the, and and I like what you posted, right? Back alleys, close hangers, right, and languages that make it sound safe. Um, you know, I I was once told a story about a relative of mine, um, you know, that before they had abortion, she had to use a clothes hanger. I mean, it definitely it's an egregious thing. It, it really is, you know. Um, and so, I guess the conversation continues. We'll we'll continue this conversation as um, the states explore it. And what happens? You know, they're protesting everywhere about it. 
Next week, we will pick up on the gun right issue where the Supreme Court just passed the gun right law. Or not not a law, but they passed a, a, a an opinion on the gun rights issue. So we'll pick up on that next week. And like I said, as, as this abortion thing um, continues throughout the state courts, we'll take a deeper look into it. All right. With that being said, uh, if you want to holler at me, you can press one. If not, that's our time. But makemorecommerce.com if you need to get with me. Uh, we'll continue with our remedies next week. And uh, I'm going to say peace to the gods. I appreciate the input, people in the chat. Listeners, thank you for calling in. I'll say peace to the gods. Y'all have a great week. I will holler at y'all Thursday for Metaphysical Thursday. Peace to the gods. I never cower for the love of money, son. I'm giving lead showers. Stop screaming. You know the demon said it's best to die. And even 